Life is an edge phenomenon in the cosmos, something that has snuck in. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden, Matthew Russell and Limbold Christmas. Oh, yeah, baby. Michael Marshall. So where is that from? That's from Michael Marshall's book, The Genesis Quest. Ooh. The journey to uncover the origin of life on Earth. That sounds epic in the literal (laughs) sense. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know anything about the book, but I was looking for a quote about astrobiology. Astrobiology. I mean, this is a great quote because I think it's true. Biology and life in general, it kind of sneaks in, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not really... I mean, this is now a spiritual question very quickly, but I don't think life is very intentional. <laughs> no. Do, do you know what? I, I love this subject so much. I, 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 think, in the, I think in this interview that's, mm. coming, that's coming up with an, with an astrobiologist, no less, uh, I, I, I kind of lose the plot a little bit. I get... <laughs> you'll see. You'll <laughs> see. Godsmacked. <laughs> Over-emotional about the whole, the whole thing. But I kind of... I'll stand by it. I think this is one of the most important topics there is. What could be more important than our our place in the universe? That's what I we agree. want. That's what we want to know, right? That's why we're doing anything, right? I mean, it's such a dizzying concept, but I mean, if you keep asking why and you keep asking why, you kind of get to this shrug. But to actually find out where we come from isn't that the most fundamental question of all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't mind spending money trying to find that out, and I guess James Webb's about that. But who's our guest? Who's our guest? So our guest is Jessica Abbott, um, who is from the University of Lund here in Sweden. Um, She's really, really great. So she works primarily in biology, but has taken an interest in sort of astrobiology. Um, So I know her from that route because, I mean, I'm kind of on the planet side of astrobiology and she's on the biology side of of, of astrobiology. So I'm astro, she's biology. (laughs) And this is something that we're going to talk about in this interview, but really you need people from both sides because if you want to talk about, okay, could life exist on this planet, let's say, you first need to figure out, well, how does life arise? And then you need to figure out, well, what is this planet like, right? So you really need collaboration between people from from both sides of the fence, so to speak. You need so many skills, don't you, with with astrobiology? You need need geology because you need to look about, you know, the the surface on this hypothetical planet. And therefore you also need chemistry. You certainly need physics and astronomy and you certainly need biology. But then you need to also factor in how things work in an extreme environment. This ain't your regular old Petri dish that we're talking about. And you have to understand vast swathes of time. You have to know about evolution. You have to yeah, know about yeah. entropy. You have to know about, oh my God, it just goes on and on and on. You, you have to be all over That's it, same. don't you? And I mean, you know, this is the, in, in sort of modern academia, you have to be so specialized, right? I mean, mm. a few thousand years ago, the sort of meme is that a few thousand years ago, you can be like, here are some thoughts I had in the bath about space and time by some Greek guy. And <laughs> that was enough to get published. And I mean, yeah. now it has to be like, this is literally the first time that this particular parameter has been changed in this particular way, in this particular field, blah, 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 blah. And it's, we, we we're so far into research at this point that we need to become more interdisciplinary, I think, personally. I think that, that you know, academia and even industry to an extent, you have so many deep dives and so many specialists 
and 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 fostering these kind of interdisciplinary sort of across the bridge um, working relationships is, is super important. I guess a lot of this work gets done by the coffee machine. That's a very clever coffee machine doing all this yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> by the no, yeah, not by the coffee by, machine. Yeah, but, beside the. But, but besides the coffee machine, yes, yeah, but, but as in, yeah, people meeting up, absolutely, having, absolutely, having having little chats, which which I guess is how you met Jessica, isn't it? That, yeah, that yeah, is, yeah, that's it. it. Yeah, she's been working for, with um, the Swedish Collegium of Advanced Study, um, which is a part. I think it's just here in Uppsala. It's very much an interdisciplinary collegium. Mm-hmm. And they do um, sort of astrobiology, and I think I think the catch-all title is life on other planets or something like this. So it's kind of like we mentioned, both from the astronomy side and the biology side. Um, so she's been involved with that from the biology side. Um, so it's very very exciting. I I, I really love interdisciplinary um, sort of sort of uh, <laughs> clicks. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it, it. I mean, you talked about specialization. Really, Jessica's specialization mm-hmm. is in. The genetics of sex differences, yes, isn't it? Yes, evolutionary uh, biology, I believe. And 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 so I so I think this the kind of this astrobiological bent is because she's working on a book with a, with another colleague. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Jessica is working on a book um, that will come out in the near future. She'll mention it uh, in Swedish um, about this kind of topic. So I, I'm definitely going to be the first person to buy it. Oh well, yeah, and you're going to do, and you're going to do an audio book for me. Oh yeah, English. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Translating on the fly, and it will be a well, lot of like, oh, this word, um, it it kind of means different, but not really. It's kind of yeah, and then it will be a very very confusing audiobook. <laughs> try not to do that. We'll we'll get Jessica back on. Jessica's actually Canadian, isn't she originally? But, yes, she is. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And she speaks um, fluent Swedish. She won't she won't oh, brag about it, but she, no, you know, yeah. geniuses are going to be like that. It's making me a little bit jealous. Um, I, before we go on, I must thank the uh, top-level patrons before we go any further. And they are the two Justins, as usual. Justin Roberts from the United Kingdom. Justin Young from Australia, Tasmania, no less. Uh, Drew Wright from Texas. And Sigmund Ede from Norway. Oh, hello. <laughs> so, yes, uh, and I'll thank the rest of the patron gang at the end. Um, before we go to the interview, I, I just saw this story and I thought it was so exciting that King Tut, as in Tutankhamun, his dagger has turned out... I didn't realise this, but they've known this for a while, but his the dagger that, that was found in the tomb is made from a meteorite. What? I know. So no I didn't way. know that. Now, I did know that Eskimos, or Inuits, as I suppose should be called, their cutlery comes from one meteorite. Really? <laughs> that, yeah, so that they, you know, obviously they didn't have any kind of way of making yep. metal Whale ore. Whale blubber and, and doesn't make great no. <laughs> hard but, tools. So, yeah, so, but, but they, but, you know, so they, they all were just using this one block of iron oh, I love that. meteorite. And, but Tutankhamun's dagger as well. And... It's really obviously a meteorite as well because it has this thing called the Winmanstaten pattern. Oh yes, after, of course. Named after the Austrian mineralogist, uh, and so yes, they know that it's probably of a certain type of asteroid um, meteorite. Sorry, well, yeah, it's a certain type of iron meteorite. Meteorite, yeah, Astro- yeah, from a from asteroids an asteroid. are the bigger ones. Meteor, and then oh my god, let's see if I remember this. Uh, Someone, if someone, if someone uh, can correct me, you get a shout out next episode. I think it's uh, meteor, meteoroid in space. 
mm. like a little fragment in space is a meteoroid. And then it's a meteor as it passes into the atmosphere. And then it's a meteorite as it is on the ground. Like if you find it on the ground mm. already. I think that's it. Yeah. So the, it, it, this is octahedrite, which is from the largest group of I, 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 iron meteorites. Yes. Yeah. And... But it's not likely to have been made in Egypt because I mean no. one of the one of the reasons why they know this is probably a meteorite anyway was the fact that this is thousands of years before they would have been using that they would have had the technology to forge yeah. their own iron. So it must have you know it, they're, yeah. they're literally doing very sort of warm right or, yeah you know, of course the, the, okay, the way yeah. that they're doing it's like wet, a naturally wet, occurring iron i guess yeah the way that they're forging it must be done at a low temperature or else yeah. it would lo lose this incredible pattern that's actually in the blade itself yeah and, it, and it's got these what look like rust spots but they're not rust spots they're actually kind of the patterns of just cool patterns. <laughs> just cool patterns and you actually find these in japanese swords as well so this oh this, yeah so so the iron it's actually you find them in in um, samurai swords and stuff like that, yeah. where it's like a sort of highly prized thing to have. So King Tut was just a big weeb. He just loved yeah. that cool. <laughs> yes. Life. So so this actually it may have been given to his family way 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 back yeah. in the day. It doesn't even need to you know it could have been um, a much older family heirloom that yeah. gets gets passed down because it's so special. Because obviously that there can't be many of these things knocking about, right? True. Yeah, that knife is definitely cursed. That is so cursed. I yeah. I mean, whoever, what poor archaeologist pried this from his mummified hands? I mean, peace be upon you. <laughs> that definitely sounds like like a <laughs> direct <laughs> ticket to Hexus. Sun God Ra maybe made that. I don't know. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I just thought that that was just worth mentioning that that. King Tutankhamun's dagger comes from outer space. Amazing. And I think they even used to call these metal objects uh, stars as well, the Egyptians. So yeah. they may have, yeah, so they may have actually have known where they were from. Yeah, that they were, I mean, that, that, that they had come sort of from outer space, that, you know, when people I mean, picked them up yeah. off the floor after seeing them come in. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I can, I can definitely picture that. I mean, it's not, it's not. Even today, it's not unheard of. I mean, if you type in like uh, meteor, meteor or something into the news, like it's 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 not exactly a super rare occurrence to say like someone caught this meteor on camera or whatever. And I mean, think I'm, about how big the Earth is. I mean, they come they come in pretty regularly, and it's not yeah. that rare. I think one, to see see one. And I think one of the reasons why the Eskimos had them, the the Inuits had them, was because you can see them quite clearly on the snow, so they're quite yes. easy to they're quite <laughs> they're, they're quite they're cold. They're quite easy to find. Uh, well, yeah. easy. I say easy. Obviously, they're ridiculously hard to find. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you can you can see when you stumble upon one. <laughs> yeah, but you can see them coming in, and if and if you're lucky, you can then sort of yeah. trace that line and find the little bits of little bits of iron and amazing. fish them in fish them in from a lake somewhere. It is yeah. it is pretty amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that no one's ever been killed by one. Anyway, as, shall as we? As far as we know. <laughs> As far as we know, shall yeah. we? Um, shall we go? Shall we go yes. to our uh, interview? Instead of Let's messing around with two, two, trying to get some curse from Tutankhamun yeah. oh, no, no. himself. Okay, close this. Um, do your whatever ritual, like throw water over your left shoulder, or whatever. Um, and let's focus <laughs> and, on 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 happier on, on, things in space. On happier things. So here, here is Jessica Akuta. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace 
back into space. We're joined on the podcast by Jessica Abbott, an evolutionary biologist uh, working in Sweden. Have I got that correct, Jessica? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> uh, and of course, I'm, I'm joined by my co-host, Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Hello. <laughs> right. So first of all, we got you on, Jessica, to talk about exobiology or... or astrobiology Astrobiology. Well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. First of all, give us a rundown on what that actually entails. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't something that I really do as part of my regular research, which is about the evolution of sex differences and sex chromosomes. It's more of a side project or sort of interest that, that, that I have uh, on the side that I've been pursuing for several years, thinking about what types of life might be likely to occur on other planets, thinking about definitions of life as well. Um, so the... Yeah, and the, the two are kind of linked. So I was part of a, an interdisciplinary project here in uh, Lund a few years ago, which was about definitions of life. And that had grown out of a previous astrobiology project where um, the members of the, the group were sort of, they, they always came back to this question, you know, if, if we want to look for different types of life forms outside of our own planet, then how do we know what to look for? Like, would we even recognize it if it's something totally different? And so that was really interesting. And it also got me thinking a little bit about, um, you know, uh, working on a book project uh, and, and thinking about like how repeatable is evolution? If you see something that's evolved on earth, how likely is it that it could evolve somewhere else? And so for me, that's what, I, you know, this astrobiology is, is all about. Some people are focused more on the um, sort of, yeah, physical properties of the planet and how they would affect life. And I guess it depends on where your interests lie. But for me, it's more about, you know, what type of solutions are likely to be common and what type of things are likely to be more idiosyncratic for the Earth. I, yeah, I'm just sat here with like star eyes. I mean, I, I love astrobiology. I think it's such an amazing thing. And because I work on the climates of planets, it, I think it's a topic that goes really well with the sort of planetary science that is sort of booming right now. Mm. In, in recent years, people are getting really into actually characterizing planets and actually having some kind of idea of what things might be happening on planets. Mm. It's not that long ago we were able to first say, wow, there is, you know, this particular chemical present on this planet but to then actually say what is actually happening on a planet is is a pretty big step you know if aliens were watching uh, earth for example they might be like yeah nitrogen atmosphere approximately 15 degrees but mm. then you look at the icebergs versus deserts versus rainforests and you know um I actually have a question because this was a question that a student gave me recently and I mm -hmm. couldn't answer it because my biology knowledge was lacking. <laughs> okay, we'll see if I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's pretty abstract, but, you know, uh, people often when you talk about, you know, we're looking for life and stuff like this, mm. people sort of push their glasses up their noses and then they say, well, what about life that we don't know what to look for? You know, mm. we have the Goldilocks zone and so we're looking for liquid water. Mm -hmm. But what if there's another type of life that could arise from a different type of uh, environment? Mm. And, and then the follow up question that someone said to me was, you know, we assume carbon based life usually and like that's what we know. Mm say that there was another kind of blank based life would we do we even know what their you know proteins would look like their amino acids mm. would they have to have a different com you know molecular structure or 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 composition 
I, I'm really I'm really showing here how I did not do <laughs> biology beyond GCC, but you know the the different things that make up the things in the biology. Yeah, exactly. Like, would they be completely different as well? Um, yeah. So this is something that's getting into the realm of chemistry more than biology, almost mm. because the reason why True. people are so um, you know interested in water and carbon is just because it seems like those. Uh, molecules and atoms have a lot of really favorable properties so that water being a polar liquid means that you can have lots of interactions uh, and and you know molecules interacting in special ways because of that and carbon can build lots of bonds and things and so i mean i wouldn't say that it's impossible that you could have life with a completely different chemistry i do think it would be difficult for us to recognize it um yeah. but it certainly seems like at least for life on the time of the type of time scales that we live on mm. that those two in combination are are pretty um pretty good uh, just yeah. because <laughs> you could imagine that you know if you think silicon based life well you can't really have anything much happening in terms of reactions you know if uh, things are solids rather point, than liquids so then it would yeah. have to be super high temperatures. Uh, you could also imagine that you might have other types of solvents, but then, you know, maybe like reactions go really slow. And so then maybe mm. it would take a long time for something to evolve and maybe it would all be happening so slowly that we can't really, can't really see it. If you've ever seen one of these, you know, speeded up films of a plant growing and <laughs> yeah, you can yeah, see yeah, how right, fast right. they move. So I could imagine that there could be some types of life that would be more or less, you know, inaccessible to us just because they might be on a time scale that would be too fast or too slow for us to even really recognize it as being a living organism. That's true. Mm. And I mean, you know, if if you need a hot planet, we've got plenty of those. Um, yeah, true. <laughs> we, we have a lot of planets, these hot Jupiters usually. Mm. Um, I think that's that's really the, the astrochemist is what astrophysicist and astrobiologist needs to bridge that gap, to bridge the understanding, I think, probably. Mm. Yeah, and I asked a, a colleague of mine who's a chemist who's also interested in sort of astrobiology and was part of this astrobiology project here in Lund a number of yeah. years ago, um, what he thought about sort of life in interstellar clouds, for example. And he right. made the argument that that's probably not very likely just because they're so thin and because <laughs> yeah. the molecules interact with each other so rarely that yeah. Yeah. probably it would be impossible for anything to really get going. Um, so there's those sorts of considerations. But I mean, one thing that has been clear over the past like 50 years of biology is that, you know, people have been setting up these sorts of um, limits of where they think life can exist. And then as soon as you start looking, you mm. see that there are things that are beyond these limits. So, <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I think we need to be a little bit humble and not be too categorical saying, you know, oh, it needs to be water. It needs to be carbon. Exactly. I think, exactly. Yeah, that might be the most sort of likely thing out there, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the only option. Yeah, because that's the argument when we look at planet atmospheres and, you know, we look in, in say, the, quote, habitable zone. Mm. Um, really, the, our only argument is like, well, we have one example of exactly. life working there. We have zero <laughs> examples of the other one. One is more than zero. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not a good sample size, but it's, it's a non-zero one. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And that's basically sort of the, the problem all the time when it talks about, whenever yeah. you're going to talk about astrobiology questions is that we just have a sample size of one. So, so how exactly. can you say anything? In that sense, I do think that looking at sort of, you know, parallel evolution on Earth of similar sorts of solutions to things can yeah. be useful because then you could say okay at least if you have this type of chemical system then this type of solution has arisen multiple times independently right. of each other yes. which probably may means that it's not that difficult to evolve 
I always think that it kind of comes down to a, how, how are you actually defining life? Because we, we we haven't even decided that with the life or the non-life <laughs> that life? we have. Yeah, what <laughs> is life? I mean, because I mean, often when people talk about viruses, and obviously we, we've been talking about viruses for the last two years non-stop, mm. <laughs> is like, do you, I mean, something like COVID, it's, mm. do you consider it life or, or, or where, do you, where, where do you actually draw the line? What, what yeah. would you consider, what, what is your definition of life? Yeah. yeah, so that's a really good question. And I've been working together with a philosopher on trying to develop some oh. new approach to defining life, which is more about like um, clusters of properties that they have in common rather than sort of it's based on Wittgenstein's family resemblance uh, uh, ideas about the definitions of things. And so then the idea, and, and a typical definition, a derailed definition, as it's called, is that you have a list of criteria and all of them have to be fulfilled for this thing to belong to this uh, category. Um, but that doesn't seem to work very well with life. I mean, y- you can read in a textbook, you know, sort of maybe seven different properties yeah, yeah, that are associated Mrs. with Grant, life. Like, I remember from biology, yeah. <laughs> like when I was 13. Uh, yeah, that one. Exactly. <laughs> like homeostasis and yeah, movement and blah, blah, blah. But you can always find exceptions, more or less, sure. like, or things like that, yeah, and things that can that are not living but that could fulfill most of these things so it's yeah. it's really complicated and i mean the when it comes to viruses specifically that's also really interesting because that's something where if you read in textbooks and if you talk to a lot of biomedical researchers they will be kind of categorical absolutely not um, but i did a little survey of people at my department uh, and asked them and about 50 percent of them said that they thought that viruses should be considered living and if you look at the nasa def- sort of working definition of life uh chemical system self-sustaining chemical system capable of darwinian evolution well that's definitely applicable to viruses so so i think a case can be made for considering them alive yeah. um but it's not i think the problem is that it's really difficult to to say that it's an either or thing, um, uh, you know, that there maybe is some sort of continuum of things that are more living to less living, right? And the <laughs> viruses might be at one end and something like humans are, are at the other. Um, yeah. But if you take something like... Um, mitochondrion, uh, which are the cell components in our cells that help produce energy, um, they have their own DNA. They can replicate themselves independently. They can move around independently, but then they can also fuse to each other and, and they can do all oh, kinds God. of weird things. Then they can't <laughs> live outside of our cells. But they were originally an independent life form that then became part of our cells through symbiosis. So where do they fit in? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> that, I, it, no, I mean, it gets... I mean, you kind of can be even more ridiculously uh, outlandish and sort of bring in all those kind of things. Well, what what we don't even know what consciousness is, so that mm. therefore, like, you can even have, you know, some some people like panpsychists would say a rock is conscious. So it's mm. like it's, it's like you've kind of got real problems there, haven't you? As yeah. well, that, that, yeah, that yeah. It, it's I guess you could like complex systems. Just because it's complex, does it is it is it starting to become? lifelike or yeah there, there obviously needs to be some other element to it and and does it really mm. matter because because you've got this thing of if we do find life on an exoplanet using james webb and seeing like some signature of what we would consider life we can't communicate with it and we can't really see what no. it is that's doing it mm. so it's 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 is that something that's bothersome in terms of well you can do all that work but really you you never really see 
well, it's, it's going to be a very long way off before you actually see what it is that you're actually dealing with. The exciting bit. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, I don't know. I think that if, if as, as is my sort of gut feeling, that it's maybe not that difficult for life to arise in various sorts of situations, then we could potentially find life within our own solar system eventually. Um, that might not be so easy and it might not be, you know, but it's, it's still probably easier than finding it somewhere far away. And yeah, I think it would be to some extent frustrating to, you know, have signatures of life be discovered somewhere, but then not be able to go and actually investigate it. But on the other hand, I think it would be so fascinating as a biologist just to have, oh, we know there's another data point out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. So I think that I that the happiness would sort of overwhelm the disappointment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, there's also the uh, uh, another whole stage to unpack, which is what would even be considered a signature? Because mm. it's like, okay, if we literally find um, sort of uh, Philip K. Dick-style civilizations mm -hmm. rising out of the clouds of an exoplanet, probably some kind of life going on there, right? But yeah. there's such, like you say, there's such a spectrum mm. that if you find, okay, you might find, quote, building blocks, like something that mm. could be a precursor to life. Is that a life detection? Mm. And then there's a, a, as we know from Earth, there was a long period where there was, quote, life on Earth, mm. but not really anything that we would recognize as things being alive. So so it's, it's a really big, big gray area, I guess. Well, exactly. And I mean, if nothing else, that's an argument for focusing on the carbon and yeah. water form of True. life that we're familiar with just because that's the sort of thing that we would have the best chance to yeah. detect signatures of like what would be the signature of some weird type of life that we don't even understand you, you wouldn't be able to find it so I yeah. think that there, there's a case that can be made for sort of mainly thinking about that type of life just because there's going to be a bias in terms of what we can even detect if if there's likelihood of kind of biological life that's pretty I guess doesn't even need to be similar to ours but is the idea of uh, a sex important for evolution itself because it seems that that's kind of <laughs> a, 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 like a, a driver of evolution but i don't know what the examples are on earth of of asexual reproduction and mm. and and whether they whether that would be something that you would consider universal or something that we're just lucky enough to have on earth if you see what i mean Right. So this is a really good question. It's getting closer to my actual sort of research focus. So there's a lot that I could say here. I'll try to keep it reasonably short. Um, okay. So the thing is that sex is a, a, has been a big puzzle for evolutionary biologists for a long time, because it's, if you could just make a copy of yourself, why wouldn't you do that? You know, if you're already well adapted to your environment, why would you want to mix genes with some other individual that's maybe not as well adapted? Plus, if you always have to find a partner, then there's going to be a lot of costs associated with that. Whereas if you are in a good situation and you have lots of energy and you can just divide like a bacterium or you can just, you know, lay an unfertilized egg that hatches into another individual, why wouldn't you do that? It seems like it's a big waste of time and energy. Um, so it seems like one of the, or that there's kind of two main advantages to sex. One of them is that it allows more rapid adaptation. So if you are well adapted, it's maybe not so good. But if you're in an environment that you're not perfectly adapted to, 
it's maybe good to mix up your genes with someone else's and produce variable offspring so that they can maybe be more adapted or that they can even colonize new uh, environments, for example. So it seems like sex can speed up the rate of adaptation. So that's something that can be sort of um, useful in terms of producing complexity. Um, it also seems like uh, sex is important for DNA repair. And the current theory today is basically that that was more or less the original function of sex. It's not so much that it was about mixing up your genes, it was more about being able to repair mutations. So by comparing your genetic material with another individual's, then you could repair mutations and and yeah, and everything else that has come afterwards is uh, sort of an add-on <laughs> in a way. A bonus. So, yeah, exactly. So in that sense, I mean, I think that any um, type of organism would need some sort of mechanism for repairing its genetic material, whatever is containing the information that it's using to, to build its bodies. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be through anything similar to sex, and it wouldn't have to be that you would have two sexes. That does seem to be a stable state with just two, um, which is why that's so common everywhere. And, and there's various reasons why you could imagine. I mean, if you're not able, able to just have sex with kind of any other individual, that it would make sense that you would have um, two because the, if you, you need a third partner, then you have all of these additional sort of costs with trying to find that partner and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it seems like that's uh, when you get to that point then that's kind of stable so yeah so it could be that you could develop some sort of system where you have two partners that have to somehow collaborate to produce an offspring but there's absolutely no reason collaborate. to collaborate <laughs> yeah exactly somehow <laughs> Is that what the kids are calling it <laughs> well but i mean it wouldn't necessarily have to be that you would have to combine your genetic material in the same way sure that, that organisms on earth do um yeah, so it's it's one of these things where I think that the repair aspect is probably fairly universal, but the actual diversity uh, aspect is probably not, and having males and females is probably not uh, universal. That's a really interesting angle, um, and you know we talk also about on Mars and Venus, and we know that they had very different climates uh, before. It's, it's so long also been a question of, you know, maybe there was life once upon mm. a time there and would there still be signs of that? And I've always thought that it would be an interesting question of if life begins somewhere, will it always kind of remain? And I guess the, it's a question of what evolves faster, sort of the climate of the planet or the evolution mm. of whatever life species is on there. Mm. Um, so that's a really interesting angle that, you know, the, actually having some kind of driver to, to I guess they would f evolve faster. Is that what you're saying? I mean, yeah, they can potentially adapt faster. Yeah. It, we have to be a little bit careful here because there are other alternatives to sex that bacteria have, for example, because they've been yeah. super successful. <laughs> so they have other mechanisms for exchanging DNA with each other that's sure. not really the same as sexual reproduction. Sexual reproduction is something that is really associated with... Um, yeah, more complex eukaryotic cells like our type of yeah. cells. But there's a lot of more simple organisms that don't do it all the time. They would only mm. do it when they need to or, you know, um, if it's a stressful environment, then they might go through a sexual reproductive cycle and then the rest of the time they might just divide. And that that is kind of the best of both worlds in a way. 
Sounds but it great. seems like that might be hard to do for a large, like multicellular yeah. organism. Yeah. So I think that, um, I mean, I, my guess is that most of the stuff that's out there is bacteria, just because like you were mentioning previously, there's been this big, long stretch of time on earth where there was nothing but simple microorganisms. And it took quite a while before we started producing more complex life. So, so those types of microorganisms, they can have really rapid adaptation because they have such short generation times and if they have mechanisms for exchanging dna with each other then then i think that they could keep up with sort of changes on a geological scale do you have a sort of gut feeling for things like that you know the fermi paradox and and the great filter do you Mm. do you have a do you have a, a sort of feeling about whether there are these great filters, whether that, you know, the Cambrian explosion, for example, mm. is is an incredibly unlikely event and we just so happen to have had it. Do you, yeah, do you have a gut feeling about where some of those sort of real bottleneck, biological kind of bottlenecks must mm. be? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the, so this book project that I've been working on for a few years, which is, yeah, I've made some progress on it, but it's it's still taking a long time. Um, that's kind of what we want to get at. Like a lot of people who are not biologists, when they talk about life in the universe, they see the origin of life as being the big, like, uh, the big bottleneck, uh, that it's difficult for life to arise. And that once it arises, it's probably likely to become complex or that that's more, more or less inevitable. Um, I think this is probably partially like a bit of a misunderstanding of evolutionary theory because often people have this idea, oh, you know, survival of the fittest and there's going to be, you know, always competition. And then that means that complexity is always better. And so as soon as you have the process get started, then you will inevitably become complex. But that's not really the case if you look at organisms on Earth. Like, for one thing, as I say, you have these big, long stretches of time where there doesn't really seem to be much happening in terms of complexity, even though there you know, might have been uh, more complex ecosystems being built up or, or whatever. But individual organisms didn't really seem to be becoming more complex. So I think it's more a matter of that any um, sort of change or increase in complexity will have costs that come with it so that it's not always clear that this is the best thing to do. So intelligence is a really good example. You know, we have, you know, we're really smart and we therefore think that it's, it must be good, (laughs) but having a big brain is, is really costly. And so you need to have some sort of a situation where the benefits that you can get from increasing brain size more than outweigh the costs, for example, in terms of energy that you need to fuel this brain. And there's obviously a lot of organisms where that hasn't been adaptive because not all organisms out there have big brains. The majority of them don't. <laughs> Do you need to be smart? I guess not to survive. Oh, no, no. no. And there's plenty of examples as well of organisms that have been more complex and then become less complex, like various types yeah. of parasites that were free living and then they become less complex as they adapt oh, to the internal terrifying. environment of the host. Intelligent yeah. parasites. No, <laughs> oh, yeah, no. But, but I mean, it's a, there's always, and in that sense, evolutionary biology is really kind of economic. Uh, science that you're right. always having to think about these costs and benefits to supply and demand yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah i mean that the most extraordinary for that i think is, is consciousness because it doesn't because mm. it must come a with a huge a huge cost it doesn't seem to have any actual benefit just gives us anxiety <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. It's, exactly yeah so it's uh yeah that's a really fascinating element of it isn't it that you that yeah you're 
you're tracing it, a cost-benefit analysis. It's, it's, mm. it's the, the, but clearly, life hasn't done that, has it? It hasn't necessarily followed the path of cost-benefit because you have all those, you have things well, like intelligence. But it, it, it's, so it's, what's the other drivers? What are the other well, potential no, drivers well, of it then? I mean, there's, there's some influence of chance as well. I mean, you have to have the genetic you know, variants that will appear to produce a new trait in order for that trait to even get started. So you could imagine that you have some sort of constraints in terms of maybe it would be really good to evolve this behavior at this particular time, but you don't end up getting the mutation that would give it to you and then you go extinct. Mm. So there could be some avenues like that that get closed off just by random chance. Um, but I mean, no, it's it's more a matter of like, uh, I, I think that it's pretty rare that you find examples that don't really follow this cost-benefit analysis. It's more that you need to think about the fact that every organism is adapted to its own sort of niche. And so they can do what they need to do, and they tend to not do a bunch of stuff that they don't need to do. So if you look at, say, you know, a domestic animal, they tend to be less intelligent if you give them various types of intelligence tests than the wild version of the same one probably because they don't need to solve problems in the same way because we take care of them. But they also tend to be better at social interactions, for example. So, so, and there's been examples of, you know, people working on um, guppies and selecting on brain size. And then you can see that if you're selecting on brain size, then yes, they can grow bigger brains, but it comes at the cost of something else. And so then they had shorter guts in this particular study. And right. so if you have a shorter gut, then maybe you can't break down food as efficiently. So you would need to have some sort of situation where the gain in brain size would be enough that you'd be getting more extra food so that it wouldn't matter that you sort of lost some of your feeding efficiency or, or um, uh, breaking down food efficiency, so to speak. Yeah. And I guess it's also, from what I remember from school, I mean, Evolution is is more lazy than, you know, concerned mm. with your quality of life. And oh, it's yes. also more like if there's <laughs> if there's no cost with, you know, for example, the, we have our appendix still, which mm -hmm. we don't really use, but there's mm. not really been an initial like a reason to get rid of it. So it's kind of there. And mm. it's more, you know, it it. It, it doesn't cost anything per se for us to have a little shriveled appendix. Yeah, fossil. exactly. And <laughs> so I mean, it's like what we usually say is that the evolution can't look forward, right? So right. You, the organisms are just responding to whatever challenges that they have in their environment Living in today. The moment. Yeah. And so even if this might lead to some sort of solution that's suboptimal in the future, yeah. then that doesn't doesn't matter because you, you don't know what's coming in the future or the, the it's, a, it's a process that doesn't have any sort of way to look forward. And then this can, as you say, lead to sort of, yeah, things that are maybe not ideal from the perspective of the individual or that could lead to kind of, yeah, bad solutions. I, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's hello, lots of examples female of female menstruation. I feel like that's go. a pretty big design flaw. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. The, uh, the the size of the birth canal in our brains is mm. another is yeah. another sort of weird. And humans uh, are very stupid babies. Like you know, they're <laughs> yeah. oh, God, yeah. like deer. Yeah. They go running off after uh, God knows how long, and we have like well, not quite eighteen years, maybe more like twenty five until we're really <laughs> really mature. Exactly. But when you start thinking about all of these costs to various types of adaptations and, and complex adaptations, then it becomes clear how 
this might not be something that would happen all the time. It might not be something that would happen on another planet. Is there any particular reason to expect that the same process would occur? If it depends a lot on sort of the available genetic variation, the specific, you know, um, selective environment at the time, that kind of thing. And and if you're going to have major changes, um, like, say, these, uh, you know, mitochondria in our cells that have come from a a symbiosis with a bacterium, then that's something where this, this... um, uh, sort of cooperation between the two types of cells probably had to go on for a really, really long time in order right. for it. And so then you would have to have an environment that would be favoring this type of cooperation for a very, very long time. And then that might be something that doesn't occur that often, uh, actually. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable that the level of complexity of a human being, isn't it? That, that, mm. we've, that, we've, that we've had a planet that's been stable enough for long enough to do to do something like that. I mean, it does, like, the more you kind of break down those, the actual, the, the thought of, of how hard it is to get to something like a human, mm. you do sort of realise the, the kind of improbability of, 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 yeah. uh, of like, intelligent life. But mm. as, as a gut feeling, do you, if we're talking about intelligent life, do, do you have a gut feeling on that about, about whether we will... In, in, in any way, ever come across an exoplanet with 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 uh, intelligent life on that in in a, that's reasonably close? I mean, what, do you mm. have a kind of feeling on that? Yeah, I mean, so my feeling is no, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I mean, getting back to your original question about Fermi's paradox, to me that that I think is the answer is just that there's probably lots of life out there, but it's probably ninety nine point nine percent simple life. Mm. Uh, or you know, or or ninety five percent simple life, or something, and that it's it's actually difficult to get something that we would recognize as being intelligent. And not that it's not out there, because there are so many planets that uh, you know there's still going to be lots and lots of examples of intelligent life. It's just that they're probably going to be relatively few and far between, and maybe so far away that we won't really have a any any chance to interact with them. Unfortunately, I know that it's a bummer, well, but <laughs> well, it, it, it is a bummer, but it also. I kind of see it as a kind of profound thought as well, like as as in if if science is kind of pointing in that direction that that potentially we are alone, mm. then we suddenly have this enormous responsibility, don't we? That that we're mm. the only meaning in the universe. We're the only thing that has. <laughs> it's like it just seems to be like it. It does seem to be like profoundly important work. Mm. That's that, true. That people like you are doing. Well, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, I, that's that's kind of the more I talk about subjects like this, it, it's like, yeah, that it's it's incredible. You know, do you ever <laughs> do, do you feel like that? Do you feel like it's an important thing? Because it's one of those things. If you if you're in a mm. cab ride, I should imagine that people, go, oh, you're an exobiologist. Uh, oh, you know, they they, 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 they would. So, you you know, again, what's, yeah. that, what's yeah, all that yeah. about? You know, what's all that about? But it's... Well, like I say, I'm Moonlight as an exobiologist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because there are lots of other people who work on this more seriously than I do. No, I don't know. I mean, the, the way, and, you know, as I've been thinking about this more and working on, on the book project and stuff, then, then it's forced me to think about these things a little bit more rigorously. And instead of being like, well, you know, that seems to have happened a lot, then that's probably common <laughs> to actually think about, well, how do we judge? How would we judge whether something is likely or not and i kind of feel that by looking at the history of life on earth there's two types of information that we can get and one is how many which i mentioned before how many times something has um, evolved independently of each other but also how long it took for it to evolve kind of the waiting time 
for it to evolve. And that if something has evolved only once and it took a long time for it to happen, then this is probably something that's not really easy uh, to get and maybe not going to be so frequent on, on other planets. Whereas if you take something like the evolution of senses, uh, eyes and, and things like that, that's happened a bunch of times in completely separate lineages. And of course, being able to sense and experience your environment is pretty obviously a good thing. So that's maybe not so surprising. So there's certain things that maybe seem kind of trivial, but when you actually start thinking about it in, in this type of way, what type of information do we have that we can use to, you know, say this is a likely sort of thing to happen, this is an unlikely sort of thing to happen, then I think you can um, that you can get a better idea of what things are are possible or plausible and what things are maybe less plausible. There was a paper I read quite recently about about metals and proteins and proteins the way that they bind to metals and 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 how that originally starts off when you've got these kind of very young planets. Mm. Is uh, do you think over the next few years people will start to be able to kind of look at the chemistry of a particular you know star system or or a planet and actually sort of rule out life like we know it because it won't really have the necessary ingredients for the right types of mm. for the right types of proteins to to develop and and eventually become dna or or some mm. kind of self-replicating proteins oh yeah i think so i mean i think that uh, always bearing in mind that just because it's not like our type of life doesn't mean that yeah. you can't have life at all but yeah i certainly think that there could be sort of uh, the possibility to get information to be able to make that kind of judgment call um when you talk about sort of the use of metals and things in in our organic um molecules i think that's also really an interesting thing to consider in terms of like <laughs> Are there specific times when it might be more favorable for life to have arisen? Um, once life has arisen, then it seems like there's, you know, with this sort of homeostasis trying to keep a constant internal environment, that there seems to be a lot of um, advantage to continuing to have this sort of setup, even if the external environment has been changed, either through geologic processes or the existence of life itself, so that this is no longer the case. So then there's, you know, for example, this idea that the salt balance in our cells is somehow related to the salt levels in, in the very early oceans, and that's not what it's like nowadays, but it's something that has been potentially kept for a very, very long time. So I think that there's also um, lots of interesting things that one could think about there in terms of, um, yeah, how does planetary evolution influence when it might be more likely for certain types of life to arise? Um I mean, I think it's certainly possible that you could have had multiple origins of life on Earth and then all that's left is one type just because that's what's persisted doesn't necessarily mean that our type is the best type or the optimal type it could be by chance right i mean it could be that you had two different types of life that arose on different sides of the planet and then one side got hit by a, a meteor and <laughs> and then that type of life was gone and it never came back um so it, it wouldn't always have to be that you know that the, the one that's left is the, the best one um but i certainly think that you know that you could have multiple origins of life early in the uh, the evolution of a planet but eventually probably one of them will take over and become dominant so it's uh yeah so i think it's unlikely that you would see multiple like separate origins of life on a given planet but that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen oh that's fascinating yeah 
I mean, this is this is now exactly the the Venn diagram overlap between our fields, and and I think <clears throat> I think with um, when you're when you're asking, can life evolve on this planet? Then it's kind of two our two fields: the the sort of um, what do you need for life, and what is this planet like? Those two kind of have to work towards each other because you kind of need both sides to answer the question, because say that we knew everything about how life evolved, say that we had the blueprints and we're like, okay, you need the degrees to be between uh, 15 and 25, you need like this percentage of oxygen or whatever, say you knew everything, then you would be stuck with, okay, well, how do we confirm that this planet actually has that environment? Because that's hard to do. And then if you flip it around and you say, okay, say we knew everything about this planet, say we know exactly what its weather conditions are, we can have a you know iPhone weather app for the next seven days, we know that every part of this planet, then you would be stuck with asking, well, does that mean that life could arise here? Because both of those are, are such hard questions to answer. And if you manage to answer one of them, you still have to answer the other to get the full, full story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's something that I think is interesting in terms of... Um, like work on the origin of life that people have been you know doing since the the 50s in terms of like what sort of conditions will lead to the production of organic molecules and more complex molecules and things i think that it's you know the kind of thing where people maybe feel like oh we're never going to know and of course we can't go back in time and observe the origin of life on earth but i mean we can get some sort of plausible scenario by investigating all of these different types of combinations of you know temperature and uh, availability of components and, and and things like that and so i think that that type of work even if we can never say exactly how life started on earth is also going to be useful in terms of thinking about the, the broader Absolutely. universe like if this seems like that could potentially be a path towards having life get started then it's worth thinking about okay what planets might have that the, those sorts of conditions and i mean there's there's no shortage of weird life on earth right there's uh is it called extremophiles mm. the the little weird crazy critters yeah exactly <laughs> i don't think that's the appropriate <laughs> biological term but yeah mm. weird life and like bottom of volcanoes and stuff so i mean yeah again if we're asking where what under what conditions can life arise it seems to be be pretty broad anyway if we're talking about fairly mm. simple life yeah exactly yeah the i mean i'm always amazed by the things that bacteria uh, can yeah. do and other <laughs> microorganisms they can live anywhere they can eat anything and they, <laughs> they can they can do all kinds of crazy things <laughs> yeah, yeah like the ones found in nuclear power stations and things like that isn't it? mm, exactly. like it's just like it's any energy gradient and they're there yep <laughs> <laughs> like it's just crazy well i mean if it, it go back to a, something that you said right at the beginning about finding life in the solar system that you thought, mm. you know, that that was quite likely or... How it's possible. Do, well, it's possible, yeah. It's and, possible. And, and, and it's like the... the with, do you buy into the panspermia idea that if... Because there mm. seems to be a lot of mixing of rocks across all the different planets of the solar system. You know, bits of Earth are, are found all over the shop, even on mm. the moons of Jupiter and things. Would... Mm. Um, therefore, if, if life arises on one planet in, in, in your system, is it quite likely that that then spreads, you know, with very, very basic life forms to mm. other to other bodies in that in that system? Um, I think it's hard for me to say whether it's likely or not, um, not knowing 
in enough detail about sort of the movement of pieces of things around the solar system. But I mean, yeah, it's certainly possible from a biological point of view that you could have some sort of um, simple microorganism, some sort of bacterium or something. And if it's in some spore format that's particularly hardy and it's maybe sort of in the middle of a chunk of material um, that it could survive and, you know, end up somewhere else. And I mean, honestly, and thinking about, you know, if we do find life elsewhere in the solar system and it turns out that basically all of it has the same origin, that everything came from Mars and then spread to the Earth or vice versa. Um, I still think that that would be super interesting from the point of view of a biologist because it would only be very simple organisms that would be able to be transported. And it was probably something that happened quite a long time ago. So you'd be, it wouldn't be a second origin of life, but you'd be talking about evolutionary histories that have been separate for so long that presumably they would have evolved very different solutions to the problems that they experienced and that they would be fundamentally different in many ways. And I think that that would be super interesting to be able to investigate. And I mean, it kind of doesn't even answer the question anyway. Let's say that all life came from Mars. Okay, well, where did that come from? Mm. Because the planet, the solar system was formed, you know, out of a, a sort of disk of ice and dust and debris in that way. I mean, it, mm. so it still had to, to enter the stage at some point in time in that case. So mm. if you just said, oh, it's fine, life came from Mars, that doesn't really close the case. <laughs> no, no, exactly, exactly. And and I mean, you could simulate, you know, environments on early Mars instead of on early Earth and try to understand yeah, yeah. how life could get started. And I think that that would be just as interesting and, and useful, given that we don't know for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's I mean, like asking what was before the Big Bang. You could just kind of keep keep asking that question, and before that, before that, before that. <laughs> yeah, but, but there, I mean, there is there is an intre- There's a really interesting thing, isn't there? Where where if you went to Mars and you found life, but you could really tell that that it had the same origins as life on Earth. Mm. That's very different to finding life on Mars that really doesn't have any connection to to life right. on on mm. Earth, and and then you would it that it, it would complete you know that. They have both of those have like really profound mm. <laughs> meaning, yeah, don't yeah, they? Yeah. Really, in different ways. Well, exactly, and I mean, of course, it would be even more interesting if we had the second origin of life, mm. or third, or fourth, yeah. somewhere else in the solar system. But it's more that sometimes when you talk right. to people, I get the impression that they think that, oh well, if it was just Earth bacteria that ended up on Mars or vice versa, then who cares? Um, but <laughs> but I, I care. think that that would be we super care. interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean. <laughs> But but it, I, yeah, I, I kind of get I get the point though. I suppose it's not as interesting as a second origin of life, or a, you know. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That I would think. be even more interesting, especially if it was very clear that you know um, that this type of life had a different biochemistry. Because then, even if it was still yeah. a variant on water and carbon, but things were you know built up in a different way, then then that would be really fascinating to study from just the perspective of you know how how do the reactions work? What well, yeah, the, what the, would be this sort of yeah. Well, the cool one would be Titan, wouldn't it? If the if, the, yeah, if yeah. Life, oh, life had yeah. sort Europa. of started in the Europa, yeah. But yeah. like the Titan, you'd have to have completely different sort of yeah. chemical start, wouldn't Ooh, you? Exactly. I'm excited yeah. just thinking about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then that would also have implications for, you know, being able to to look at other planets and say whether they might potentially yeah. be inhabited or inhabitable. If we if we had a concrete example of an alternative type of life, then we could study that and then extend that to, yeah. whereas now we're just kind of stuck with looking for things that are like us. Yeah. 
the sample size of one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the annoying thing. A sample size of one is is terribly weak, isn't it? Yeah. As a it's bad data. Well, to start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, when it comes to the origin of life, then that's always going to be the case. But that's why I think it's interesting to think about these other steps in terms of you know on the way to intelligence and complexity, because that's something where we potentially do have multiple origins and can actually yeah. we can have multiple sources of information, even though it's all coming from the single origin of life that that we can get a bit more information when it comes to those later steps. And I mean, I mean, could you argue that there are multiple origins, quote, origins yeah. on life in the sense that, you know, the, the nuclear power plant, the bacteria, a good example, mm. that was a, a new environment that we created less than 100 years ago. And mm. now there's a life that presumably did not exist mm. uh, before then. So, I mean, I guess new life kind of springs up here and there. With, on a regular basis anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you could argue that, but is that new does that species happen in a vacuum? new life forms, so. Yeah, well, does that happen in a vacuum when we have new new species that spring up? Like, is are they always related to something else? Yeah, so, I mean, everything that we have studied to date is related to each other, and you can tell by the sort of biochemical similarities. Um, yeah. Some things are, you know, farther apart. It's been Weirder. a longer time, so, yeah, so yeah. that they're more different from each other. Um, and, and I mean, I suppose it's possible that you could have, you know, if you have the same building blocks available, that you could have the same type of life that actually arose in more than one place yeah. on the planet, but you just can't tell the, the difference. And it's also really complicated with these, you know, with the, the, the first transition to a life form, because you are initially talking about some sort of chemical system sure. that's dynamic, and then this has to somehow become individuals that are reproducing themselves. So, I mean, you could also have, you know, multiple systems that then combined and, and you know, ended up producing your initial individual or individuals. Yeah, I've never thought about that. The, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess a distinguishing feature of life is that it's a, a collection of individual living things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. That that you mentioned them earlier, the mitochondria, and and it's like that 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 whole thing that they've <laughs> en they've entered another organism, and that's kind of thank goodness they did because yeah, yeah. that's why we're here kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, but, but that, but a similar sort of thing happened with, is, am I right in saying a similar sort of thing happened with chlorophyll uh, yes. for, for the plant kingdom, etc. The chloroplasts. So, yeah. yeah. That do photosynthesis. Yes. Yeah. And actually so there's, there's really... an example of two things, isn't there? So, yeah, so, so there's the... a sample of two. So there's two, actually there's a third one potentially, which is worth mentioning because it, it gets back to this idea about sort of individuality and what's a life form versus not a life form. And so like a cell from your body, you wouldn't really say that that's a life form because it can't exist on its own. Um, but it's, it might be sort of a living component, right? So there's these amoeba called Polynella, and they have a cyanobacterium that has become a symbiote and is kind of on its way to becoming a cell component. So in terms of like the number of genes and how independent they are and stuff, it's kind of like halfway between a free living bacterium and a chloroplast. And so different people, you know, some of them want to call it an organelle, a cell component. Some of them want to say, no, it's just a really derived symbiote. And so there's not a consensus because we're kind of in the middle of this process. And so that's why I think it's really difficult to talk about sort of, um, you know, life versus non-life in a really categorical way. Because partially yeah. when you're talking about the origin of life, it would have to be some reasonably gradual 
progression. And also, even when we look at organisms today, you can see things that are kind of somehow in between, like viruses is another example. And there's there's various theories about where viruses come from. There's some that could be sort of genes that uh, transposable elements that they're called that could copy themselves between different parts of the genome that acquired some sort of protein coats so that then they could start moving around between organisms and not just within an organism. Um, but there's also a theory that it could be that they originally came from something like a bacterium that infected a cell and then just basically outsourced more and more of its functions until in the end, it only kept the most essential things. And then in that kind of sense, you have a de-origin of life in a way. <laughs> you have something that's gone from being alive to not necessarily being alive yeah. anymore, which did, I think is super interesting to think about. Oh my god, yeah, that's insane. Mm. <laughs> when you said when you said that um, every all of life, though, I guess in every sense of the word, is all related. I think first of all, that's really cool, and I hadn't considered that. Does that mm. mean that I mean, are do we have common ancestry with viruses as well? Um, well, that's the good question in the sense that if the viruses arose from mm. a bacterium or something then not directly but indirectly yeah. yes that everything can sort of go back to to the, some sort of, initial origin yeah exactly yeah some starting point and then you've had various Amazing. but it's more yeah. like a network it's not just like yeah. a branching tree yeah yeah, isn't it the first few letters of every single life? So you can spot? have these, yeah. you know, organisms that jump back and forth. And, That's so cool. Yeah, so, I mean, the genetic code is the same. There are some microorganisms that have some small differences there, which suggests that they split off from the rest of life so early on that they have gone a slightly different different route. But, yeah, so yeah. basically all of the genetic information and all of the um, sort of types of um, molecules that we use are, are all the same. But I guess that's an important distinction, the splitting off very early on versus arising on its own because it's yeah own, exactly yeah, right? and so that's the thing is that the, all of the variety of life that we see and things that are very different from us like archaea and bacteria and stuff mm. then it, it just seems to be because the split occurred very very early on yeah um but it doesn't we don't have any good evidence at least that there had that there was a second uh, origin of life yeah which is which is terrifying isn't it i mean that, that, that might, i mean that that is that, I mean, that's just one of the sort of great filters. But, you know, if there's only, mm. like you said, there could have been multiple origins, but they're mm. lost to us now because one dominates. And Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, but, reassuring. I'm glad that we're not, like, battling some, <laughs> like, uh, neo-species of some horrible primate that arose from a oh, second yeah, origin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something, like, very sci-fi. Well, I, well I, I, mean, get, I get that could happen, couldn't it? You could, you could have an island islandized kind of planet where you've got one biosystem on one hemisphere yeah. and another biosystem on another where they really couldn't one mix. system two systems well like yeah well like these proteins that have chirality and all those kind of mm, things yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd have completely different. yeah life is terrifying well it is the, i mean the other thing that you have to think about when you talk when you talk about life and when you're talking about energy gradients the thing is that you know as soon as there's uh, an unused niche then there's an opportunity Right. I had uh, someone who asked me a question once about um, ticks. Why do ticks exist? What function did they serve oh, yeah, in nature? And I was like, they don't serve a function. Their only function is to <laughs> make, make more of themselves. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, I mean, 
the reason why everything looks like it fits together so well in an ecosystem is just because if there's a lot of something that isn't being used, then any individual that can make use of it is going to have a huge advantage. And so then you don't see a lot of waste and you don't see a lot of stuff just lying around that's potentially, you know, um, can be used as energy that doesn't get used just so things that eat wood and, and stuff like that. Um, it, but that's just because any, any individual or any organism or any species that manages to, to do that, uh, they're going to do so well. So uh, that's also the way you can think about it when it comes to, you know, uh, origins of, of life. And, and if you yeah. could have two different types of life on one planet, yeah, it's possible. But even if you think that they might have, you know, say different chirality from the beginning, well, then any mutant individual that was able to eat life of the opposite chirality <laughs> would, yeah. would be super successful. And, and so, yeah, and yeah, exactly. And, and it doesn't mean that everything is always about sort of eating the competition, but, but sure. more that you need to think, cause there's lots of examples of cooperation leading to yeah, yeah. Uh, evolutionary change as well um but rather that you need to think about like you know and that's why we can see organisms that have so many different types of energy that they can use just because anytime you see something unused <laughs> then that's a, a major opportunity <laughs> exactly yeah. and i mean we we've seen um, even on earth even in real time in our lifetime that ecosystems are fragile and and mm. changes can can uh happen on short scales i guess mm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But I mean, you know, examples of like bacteria that have evolved to be able to break down plastic and things like that. Yeah. Like that's a resource that suddenly has become really abundant. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, yum. There's all the plastic yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that that's something to, to keep in mind, you know, when it comes to like the these um, multiple origins of life. And, and I don't know if it's really so much that the fact that we only see one is sometimes, you know, on earth, one type of life is sometimes used as an argument that it must be a difficult thing to achieve but i think about yeah. it more in terms of the time aspect that it seems like earth arose very very early as soon yeah. as the sort of crust was stable enough that that it would even yeah. be feasible so to me that suggests that it's probably not that difficult to evolve and there might have been multiple origins and it's just that now that so much time has gone past every the other ones have, yeah. have gone this is a pretty common problem in evolutionary biology when you're looking at fossils right that you have limited evidence left you could right. you could take a specific group that now isn't very specious there might only be like one or two organisms left but if you and you think okay well they're not very successful but then if you have fossil evidence you could say oh look this used to be a super successful group and then just a lot of them disappeared yeah um and if you don't have that kind of evidence and everything that happened so long ago on earth that we're talking about microorganisms there's no mm. fossil leftovers so we can't yeah. really know for sure Survivor bias. exactly so you have this really big effect of well what we see is is what is left it doesn't mean that it's everything that there was yeah, the victor's right history <laughs> in, the, in the biological history it's been really awesome thanks that, I, I, yeah some really interesting things to to, to, to think about there I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'll, I'll have to get you back on when do you think you'll finish your book Okay, so I was. Oh, no, that's a big question. <laughs> no, but it's been a side project. I'm working on it together with a friend of mine who's a science journalist. And so yeah. we're trying to write kind of half each, like every second chapter, right? And so we've been working on it for a long time. And uh, I did a kind of mini sabbatical last fall to work on it. And I got pretty far with it. I wrote like four of, of six planned chapters in draft. Um, 
and we've been in touch with a publisher and stuff. So now it's, you know, she needs to get a bit caught up on doing some of her chapters and I need to write the last couple so that we can then, you know, send it off to the publisher and see what they think. So yeah, it's, I be, became head of my department this year. So that's eating up a lot of time. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to try to get a big chunk of the book done in the fall before, before that <laughs> before. happened. So, oh, I mean, nice. I'm, I'm optimistic that it will get done at some point, but it's not going to be like next month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully yeah. this year, uh, I would say. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go. So that, that was Jessica. I, I massively enjoyed that chat, Lynn. I loved it. Always such a pleasure. I would love to invite her again. ASAP, because I have so many more questions. <laughs> I know. Well, that was the thing, isn't it? With, with, with these interviews, you... You go away and go, oh, I wish I'd asked that. So we definitely, yeah. when when the book's finished, we'll we'll get Jessica back on. Yeah, we'll and, quiz her uh, on her own book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll quiz. What else has she found? What else has she found out? So as promised, I'm going to thank the other patrons who've who've waited long enough. They are <laughs> Paul Hilton Australia, Bob Hodges in the UK, Bob Moore in the UK, Malta Keisling from Germany, Rob Annabel from the UK, Mark Schoen from America. Nicholas Gillenstein from Sweden. Woo! Shout out! Marissa Davis from the UK. John Bennock from the United States of America. Ben Guthrie from New York. Stas Susha from London. Uh, Alden Vala from Norway. Tristram Tupperhide from America. Jacob Economy from Honolulu. Gene Watchtenick from Texas. Kenton Hokanson. Is that Oregon? Seth Hyberline. From NE, where's NE? Nebraska. God, I'm Nebraska. being Nebraska. Oh yes, <laughs> Nebraska. Ronald Hatcher. Right in if it's if, if we got that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> R- Ronald Hatcher. Live tweet <laughs> from the from the UK. Neil Hansen. Adam French. Jim King. Oh, you love Jim King. Al Broom. Steve Croucher. And Mark Kelly. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the show. Without it, it would be doomed. And I must apologise for the lateness of this particular episode. The good thing is, Lynn and I got another interview in the bag with a with an astrogeologist. Ooh, is I that, guess that's the title, yeah. Is, is that sounds what we're cool. Co- we're going so, to go with that, yeah. And it is a mind-blowingly good interview, isn't it? I, I, I learned so much. I was so excited and I unlearned so much as well from that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, that one as well. There's a really bunch good. of things that Big Moon does not want you to know. <laughs> oh my God, there's so many things in there. So that's it. So, um, yes, have you got any plans, Lynn? Have you got any uh, good guests that you're going to drag onto Ooh, the show? I don't know. I've got a couple up my sleeve. Um, my uh, sleeve's nice. getting pretty crowded, so I'll see who jostles out. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> right, well, that's it. All, all is left to say goodbye to the Spodcats. Goodbye, good night, good afternoon, good morning. Bye, friends. Bye-bye, Spodcats. Bye.